All right, you found the New Species Podcast, and you thought, I'm going to listen to some of these early episodes. But did you know that this is more of a current events kind of podcast? So I suggest you actually start with some of the later episodes, and then if you really want to, come back and listen to some of these early ones. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Michael Sharkey. Dr. Sharkey is a professor emeritus in the Department of Entomology at the University of Kentucky. He's here today to talk to us about his paper published on February 2 in Zookeys, wherein he and his co-authors described 403 new species of Braconid parasitoid wasps from Costa Rica. Welcome, Michael. Nice to be here. That's a mouthful there just in the title. What are Braconid parasitoid wasps? Hmm, no, a good question. Uh, so for lay people, they might be used to stinging wasps, but um, these wasps don't sting. Rather, they have an ovipositor. Sting actually is a modified ovipositor. And with their ovipositor or egg layer that looks like a sting, braconid wasps lay eggs onto or inside of usually other insects. And their progeny then consume those other insects and uh, propagate in, in that manner. And there are tens of thousands uh, of hundreds of thousands, actually, of species of braconid wasps. Okay, so the, the parasitoid part is, is that they, they, they lay their egg on most often larvae of something, right? The softer bodied stuff. Would that be correct? Most of them uh, lay their eggs inside or onto larvae, but we have large groups that lay their eggs inside the eggs of other insects. And okay. they lie quiescent inside the egg until it hatches into a larvae and becomes almost full grown and then consumes the larvae. And we have even rarer instances where they lay their eggs into adult insects, typically beetles, and consume the beetle. Uh, the, the larvae then consume the, the adult beetle. But right. you're right. For the most part, they're consu- their eggs are laid into larvae and the larvae is consumed. Right. So they lay their egg on it, the larvae hatches, and it's either the, the egg is either laid inside or exterior, and then it either attaches on the outside, bores its way in, or it's actually inserted into the, like, the, and when we say larvae, we're talking like a maggot, just so people understand, right? So it's, it's, that's a gross oversimplification, but that's an example of a larvae would be a maggot for like a fly. Right, or commonly a caterpillar, if in the case of a right. butterfly or moth. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So the, both of those are types of larvae in, in the insect world. And then we're, we're talking about an egg that would then be deposited on or inside of it, hatch, and then let the thing live for a while. So it eats it from the inside out until it's ready to, to come out and become an adult wasp, right? So it's not like it kills it instantly. This is a, a, a slow, slow process that can sometimes even modify the behavior of the organism that they've attacked, right? Well, they come in two forms. There are some, and this is a a rarer group, that consume the uh, host insect, the host larvae, immediately. But for the most part, they're finding very small larvae, very tiny young larvae of their hosts. They lay the egg inside, 
And that egg hatches into a first instar larvae, parasitoid, and lies quiescent inside the larvae until the larvae is full grown. And so uh, during that period, yes, they can also modify the behavior of the, uh, of the host insect so that it behaves in a way that will be beneficial to the parasitoid. So you're right, yeah. So it's, it's almost like some sort of weird larval mind control that some of these are capable of. And, and, and I understand this is a, a small amount of these things that are, that are doing this particular behavior that, that I'm refer, to which I'm referring, but it, it, it's pretty fascinating. How, how in the world then, and this is just a stunning number, you found, or you've, you and your co-authors described 403 new species in a single paper, and they're all from Costa Rica across 11 subfamilies, so there's, there's quite a huge diversity. How in the world do you find 403 new species? That's amazing. I wish it was amazing, but in fact, uh, in Costa Rica, we probably have, I'm guessing, 40,000 species or maybe 20, 20 to 40,000 species of Braconids. So finding 400 is quite simple, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But how, many are, how many are currently described from uh, Costa Rica? Oh, I wouldn't be able to guess, but I, could t- I can tell you that about 5% of them or less are described. So 95% of the Braconids in Costa Rica are undescribed or perhaps even more. Almost all of them are undescribed, unknown. So why, why don't we know about them? Like, what is it about these things? Paint a picture of exactly what a Braconid is like for us. What, tell us a little bit about them, their size, their colors, things like that. Well, that, that, it's, it's curious. You'd think, well, if people don't know about these, they must be very tiny, obscure, dark, uh, little fly-like animals that uh, nobody pays attention to, but no. We have a lot of uh, Braconids that are about a half an inch, especially the groups that I've been working on most of my life. They're about half an inch long. They're brightly colored, yellow, black, orange, red. And you can see them all over the tropics, wherever you go. And they're integral parts of the uh, ecosystems. So why we haven't described them is simply because there aren't enough taxonomists to do the job. Of course, yeah. we do have a lot of very tiny uh, Braconid wasps, too, uh, that are a bit more obscure looking and might be overlooked by a, a person that wasn't an expert. But uh, by and large, they're fairly good sized insects. Excellent. What are these things doing ecologically then? So that they're obviously parasitizing or, or infesting or, or consuming a variety of different types of organisms, uh, mostly as I understand it, mostly insects and their larvae. What do they do ecologically? What, what is their importance? What's their role in the world? Well, you know, if we know little about insects, I, I think we need, know even less about ecology because to know a lot about ecology, you have to tie in enormous food networks and see what niche each species is playing. And since we don't even know the species, it's hard to know ecologically what impact they have or if they don't, uh, if they were to disappear, what impact that would have. But basically what uh, parasitoids do is they keep other insect populations in check. And uh, the way we recognize this is in biological control uh, situations where by some sort of air in the the transport uh, industry, a pest insect is imported into, let's say the United States and without any natural enemies, i.e. parasitoids, the populations of that insect blossom and they become enormous pests. So there's quite a, a program called biological control 
where people like myself go to foreign countries to search for peristoids to import to various countries to combat insects that have become pests. So uh, the bottom line is, without peristoids, it's quite likely that all sorts of populations of uh, phytophagous insects would blossom and overconsume their uh, plants and cause havoc to the ecosystems. And just to clarify, two points that you made there. First, phytophagous, for those who don't know, are, are plant-eating types of insects. So examples of these invasive species that you were talking about that may accidentally end up over here. So for example, we might have, say, the emerald ash borer, right? A good example. Mm-hmm. And trying to find a, so, so this is a, a little tiny beetle that affects, infects ash trees and actually can kill them. And first detected, I believe, in Michigan and started to slowly spread from there. And we don't have natural pests for it here in the U.S. And so a biological control would be something like trying to find the natural enemy of it, in this case, a braconid parasitoid wasp, and bringing it over to see if we could actually get it to, 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 to establish in the United States so that it could help control emerald ash borer so we don't have to worry so much about moving firewood from one county to the next. Exactly. And of course, that's been done. Um, there have been numerous expeditions to uh, Asia to look for parasitoids of their emerald ash borer. Some have been identified and some have been uh, imported to the United States and released, I believe. I'm I'm pretty sure they've been released. They've certainly been um, imported and looked at as potential um, uh, enemies of the emerald ash borer. It's a fine example. When we talk about new species, uh, and and this is a truly impressive number, coming up with 403 of these, how did you decide that you have new species for these? 403 of them, you said they're actually quite easy to find anywhere you go out, you're collecting basically the perconids. But what characteristics are we looking at? What, what did you use specifically to determine these were new species? To discriminate amongst all those new species and determine uh, to separate them from each other, uh, to discriminate the species that are there, the bulk of which are new, I used a, a barcode approach. And what that basically means is 658 base pair sequence from a mitochondrial gene called cytochrome oxidase 1 is used. Now, this is a gene that varies dramatically between species, but varies very little within a species. So it's much like DNA fingerprinting for humans. Every human has slightly different uh, DNA. Likewise, every species of insect just about um, has uh, a different uh, DNA fingerprint, and we use uh, cytochrome oxidase 1 as uh, the gene for that fingerprint. So yeah, so we looked at all those sequences, and uh, if they uh, clump together and differ very little, it'd be one species. And if, if, if they vary greatly, and there's no gap, uh, then it's, it's one species as well. I mean, you look at big gaps between the species and how uniform, perhaps is the word, for the CO1 is within the species. And on yeah, top so of you're, that, you're looking for, you're, so, so there's always going to be a little bit of variation, just like there is in humans, right? So we have people with blue eyes, we have people with brown eyes, that sort of thing. So we expect when we look at this little 658 base pair long sequence of DNA, a little A's, G's, T's, and C's that make up the, the code of life. Uh-huh. If they're very, very similar, they'll clump together in a little kind of like a tree of life kind of thing. And then there might be small amount of variability, but, but not, not enough for us to say like, oh, this is totally different. But then 
we'll look at other specimens that are collected and see that those there's a cluster of those that may come together, but that cluster is, is quite different than the other one. And so we basically use the DNA to help us differentiate between the species, correct? That's correct. And then we back that up with morphological evidence. You, you will have a, a tree produced that clumps the specimens based on the, the gene. And then you look at all the specimens that are clumped together. And if they all look the same, you've more or less corroborated what the gene said. So you have two pieces of evidence, the morphology and the gene. Now, we were lucky uh, with the parasitoids because for more than half of the species that I described, we also had host information. And my parasitoids are fairly host-specific. That is to say that they'll only be on one genus of uh, caterpillars. They're all, in this case, they were all parasitoids of caterpillars. And so if you saw something that was um, bouncing around into different families of caterpillars, it would give you a, a pause and you'd check to see that it wasn't, in fact, two species that you were looking at. The cytochrome oxidase barcode is not 100% effective. It's about 10% defective for the group that I work on. So 10% of the time, what's going to happen is you're going to have multiple species that all have quite similar barcodes. And you have to go in then and discriminate those species with other criteria, like their morphology, or uh, perhaps their host use. Or um, I, I shouldn't say that the cytochrome oxidase uh, one is not discriminating but it's not discriminating at a level that you would immediately say, yeah, that's a different species. You would, it would discriminate, but perhaps at a, a more subtle level than would allow you to say for sure that's a new species. Sure, so it takes sure. a bit more digging. Just so people understand the, the, the word barcode. So if you look on your bottle of water or whatever, there's a, the little barcode that they use to scan to get the price of it. And we call it a DNA barcode because it's going to be unique. So every time I buy a bottle of like Dasani water, right? Uh, once we <laughs> buy a, a, a bottle of Dasani water and it knows that it's a 20 ounce bottle, you scan that thing, it'll always have that same one. And that's the idea behind barcoding is that each species has its own unique barcode we get from the DNA. Now, you mentioned the morphology of it, uh, and you had pictures of a lot of these. Uh, what exactly, what kind of details were you looking for in the pictures to help you decide that these were different species? I understand you're using the DNA to, to set it up and give you an idea like, well, these may be different species, or you were even looking at the behaviors to say these may be different species. Now you're looking at the pictures. What specifically are you looking for in the pictures to help you differentiate? The pictures that uh, I placed into this uh, publication are mostly like a, a voucher picture. And they're meant for uh, future workers. So if somebody comes along and looks at uh, Braconids in Costa Rica a few years from now, and they get a barcode from a particular parasitoid, and they uh, want to check to see what species that is based on the barcode, they would come across my publication, perhaps, and see that that barcode matches one of the species that I described. Well, the problem, one of the problems with barcodes is that in producing barcodes, you have things like contamination. In other words, you think you're barcoding a particular insect because you put a piece of its leg into a vial and uh, into a well and so on. But it could be that there was another little bit of an insect attached to that leg and you actually amplified a gene from a totally different species. So the images that I have, uh, that we've published are meant to say, okay, if the barcode matches, also have a look at this image. And the specimen that you've barcoded should look a lot like this one. Okay. So it's a, a voucher of, of sorts. 
How did you then, okay, so you have 403 species. That's a lot of names to come up with. How did you start picking the names? <laughs> you know, um, before this, these 403 species, I've described many other hundreds of species. And picking names is a, a very difficult thing to, to do. I mean, there are so many names um, uh, that are, have been used over and over and over again in, in entomology that to actually come up with new names is a bit of a chore. What we did in this article was we've honored people that have been instrumental in the biodiversity studies in Costa Rica. So these are people that um, have identified the host caterpillars. These are people that have collected the caterpillars. There's, there are people that have donated to, um, the, um, to the foundation that uh, funds this kind of research. Uh, and we use their, their names as the species epithets. For example, we named uh, one species, um, Clinocentris Andy Warren I. And Andy Warren is a Lepidopterist. He describes species of skipper butterflies. And he's des described and identified many species of skipper butterflies in Costa Rica. And we've relied on those uh, identifications to get the host data and the, the um, food networks for the work that we're doing. So we wanted to honor Andy in, in that regard. And, and they're not always named after people. That's, that's one of the things that I think we often find in science is that species are named after people, but there are other ways to name species, right? You talked about some of the other species you've named. What are, what are some of the more unique names you've given that were not named in honor of people? Do any jump out at, at you right now as this was a really interesting name I gave to something that was not named after a person? Well, let's see. For my PhD thesis, I described, uh, I think, um, 98 or 103 species of a uh, braconid wasp called Alabagris. And in that particular revision, I used a lot of names that were from uh, deities of Aztec and Mayan and other religions from South and Mesoamerica. There was one black one that I called Ixtleton. You know, Ixtleton was a Aztec god, I believe. It's been 30 years, so I can't remember too well. Sure. <laughs> he was an Aztec god that uh, was a bit scary in the nighttime when it was black, you know, and, and so there was this black wasp and I called it Ixleton. There were a number of others like that, named after deities uh, of um, man and Aztec uh, deities. We often include things with structures as well, right? Do, do any of these Braconid wasps have structures on them that were particularly striking and when i say structures you know sometimes they have, we talked about the ovipositors earlier and uh, most people would probably realize that the stinger that you would get from a typical wasp is a modified ovipositor that it uses to sting you the ovipositor as you mentioned earlier is just a way to lay the egg it's a modified version of that were there any that had other structures either the the ov ovipositors were particularly long or they had other structures many horns on their heads things like that uh, well, you know, I've looked at so many of these things that I'm not surprised too often anymore for, you know, you're talking about long ovipositors. It's one genus that's included in the revision where we have about 30 species that's called macrocentris. And that means long sword because they have a, a long ovipositor. The downside to that is that all the species have long ovipositors. So we can't, <laughs> we can't you know, call it macrocentris, macrocentris. Uh, that would be a bit redundant. It would describe them all. Uh, but yeah, in the past, I've done things like that. There's one, for example, called Alabagra stigma. And it's called stigma because it has a big yellow spot on the wing. 
spot equals stigma. So they're often names are often used to describe morphological or color attributes to to the insects, and uh, they've been used over and over and over again uh, because you know you have. In my case, the, the groups that I work on worldwide, I work on a super family called Ichnomonoidea, which includes the families Briconidae and Ichnomonidae, basically. And there are probably a million species altogether. That's my uh, newest prediction. I think I predicted 800,000 several years ago, but I've modified that now with good evidence to about a million species. And to come up with a million unique names that describe morphological structures on these things that vary just a little bit between each one is a very difficult thing to do. So I'm, I very much welcome uh, being able to name them after people. Absolutely, yeah. You can only use pseudo so many times to just get a slightly That's different- right. That's right. Know. Or quasi or epi or whatever, yeah. Exactly, yeah. You only get so many iterations of a word before you run mm -hmm. out of just ways to say it. That's right. Only so many ways to say the color red. Mm-hmm. And we found them all, believe me. <laughs> so why is it important for people to know about these wasps? If you, if you were talking to the general public, and, and I think we've covered some of this, but you're, you're, you go to a grade school, for example, and the little kids are like, oh, wasps, I'm scared of wasps. First, why should they not be scared of these? And second, why should they care about them? You know, that's an excellent question. What's happened in our society is that people have become disconnected from nature. And um, those of us who haven't become disconnected um, have tremendous joy and pleasure out of being in nature because we understand, oh, that's the, the spotted fertility and it's laying eggs on the passion vine. And I'm going to have little caterpillars there. And then macrocentris irvi is going to be laying its eggs inside that caterpillar. I'm going to watch for that. You know, it's such a fascinating, tremendously diverse world that we live in. And, uh, the world uh, is just losing contact with that. We were all, our entire genealogy has been derived in an environment where we were very close to nature. But for the last 100,000 years or so, uh, in the case of Europeans, maybe 50,000 years, um, we've become increased, no, I should say much less than that. The last 2,000 years, we've become separated slowly and now very rapidly from uh, nature. And it's not a natural thing. To know nature and to know um, our natural environment and appreciate it will eventually save the world because at the rate we're going right now, not understanding the destruction we're doing because we just are not familiar with our surroundings is uh, a force that's gonna, going to have to be um, um, reckoned with. So the bottom line is if we don't know nature, including my little wasps, if we aren't uh, aware of it and if we don't embrace it, will be separated from it. And it will uh, eventually cause, as it has already, tremendous um, degradation of the human experience. Uh, yeah, that's well put. One other question I have for you along the same line is, is there anything new that we can learn from these wasps that we can apply elsewhere? Absolutely. So I had a PhD student, Victoria Pook, who um, studied an ichneumonid wasp called Megarissa. And that's the biggest ichneumonid wasp that occurs in North America. And what it does is it has a, 
ovipositor, what looks like a sting to the common person, that's about four inches long. And that ovipositor is as thin as a horse hair. And in about five minutes, it can use that ovipositor to drill four inches inside of hardwood, typically maple, and find a larval insect and paralyze and oviposit on that larval insect. So the question that we had was, well, how can this hair-like structure penetrate four inches of wood? And what we discovered was that it's actually emitting an enzyme that's basically breaking down the cellulose on the cell walls of the wood. And so it's melting, melting, it's melting it's the way into the wood. Melting, huh? melting the wood in the way in. So why is that interesting? Well, there's a big wood chip industry that changes wood chips that are the byproduct of lumber yards and so on. And these wood chips are used in the biofuels industry to produce ethanol. Now, <clears throat> in doing that, what they, what they uh, have to do is they have to boil the wood chips in acid. And uh, that breaks down the cell walls so that um, the cellulose inside is exposed and then can be fermented to change it into alcohol. That sounds very so, expensive. That's the point. You, you, you're wasting about 20 or 30 percent of the energy that you're going to extract in the heating process. What we did was we tried to um, find the gene that produced this enzyme. And then we took that gene, put it into E. coli and mass produced it so that it would mass produce that enzyme and tried to get that to uh, degradate the wood in a slurry and then produce alcohol much more cheaply. Now, we weren't successful. But the idea is amazing. That's fascinating. It is. And so, you know, there's a thousand examples like that. Anytime you look at just about any insect in detail, you'll come up with uh, something that's interesting. The other thing that's uh, happened recently with parasitoid wasps is that they have stingers that cause very minimal damage to their hosts because you don't want the host bleeding to death after you stick an ovipositor inside of it. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, that makes uh, sense. There's recently been a, uh, a needle used in medical circles now that's been engineered, modeled on an parasitoid ovipositor. And this is meant for very delicate um, surgeries uh, of infants and, and um, uh, delicate areas of the body. So yeah, it just go goes on and on. So we have, we have excellent uses for the oft-overlooked braconid wasp outside of just knowing that they're amazing, diverse, and fascinating and could be used not just for melting wood, but also for biological control to help farmers protect their crops, to help protect our ecosystems, and uh, just a variety of other important biological measures in addition to these interesting industrial measures. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate that you would take the time to come out, enjoy some time on your patio with me and talking about these amazing little wasps. And I thank you for coming on the, the podcast. And I look forward to the next time I might be able to talk to you. Okay, Patrick, my pleasure. Thank you. Sure. And thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Once again, Dr. Michael Sharkey's paper is in the February 2 issue of Zookeys. And the title of the paper is Minimalist Revision and Description of 403 New Species and 11 Subfamilies of Costa Rican Braconid Parasitoid Wasps, Including Host Records for 219 Species. The paper is currently available open access. See the episode details for a link to the paper. 
And to learn more about Dr. Sharkey, find him at www.sharkeylab.org. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.